This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... St. John's. Spotty Attendance. The Castle of Otranto. And Ed and Lorraine Warren. of eight from our freebooting pals at Atlas Games is a pirate ship combat game played with coins. Minted metal coins that clink in your hand. And that's it. No board, no dice, no meeples, no colored cubes. Just coins made out of metal. To play pieces of eight, you hold a stack of pirate coins in your hand. That's your ship. And you hold one coin in your other hand. That's your crow's nest. Coins represent things like cutlasses, mates, barrels of grog, and the captain's monkey. Each coin has a special ability you use to attack your enemies. Your enemies being other scurvy players and their own filthy coins. When coins get blown to kingdom come, they go to the Davy Jones locker of your pants pocket. The last player with a surviving captain coin wins. One of the cool things about Pieces of Eight is that you don't need a table to play. Because of all the coins are either in your hand or in your pocket. So it's great for car trips. Or standing in line. Also a great pub game. Because if you're doing the pub right... All the little pub tables are already busy holding your pub drinks up off the pub ground. The no-table gimmick is clever, but Pieces of Eight is also a great game. For example, it won the Origins Awards Vanguard Award for Innovation in Game Design, and it was a nominee for the crazy prestigious Diana Jones Award. Designed by the worthy yet modest Jeff Tidball, who wrote this ad copy what was too shy to credit himself. How tragically Minnesotan of him. Yes, I guess we'll never know who designed this brilliant, groundbreaking game. But we do know that Atlas Games is running a limited-time clearance of Pieces of Eight coin sets right now. Each set contains enough coins for four players, and the limited-time price includes shipping and handling. Let's recap. Pieces of Eight is a pirate ship combat game played with minted metal coins. You don't need a table, so it's great for long lines, car trips, and pub gaming. It's an award-winning design for expert-certified great gaming. And right now, you can get a four-player Pieces of Eight package at a limited-time drop-everything price. Shipping and handling included. Learn more at atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-p08. That's atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin dash the letter P, the letter O, and the number 8. Or follow the link in the show notes. That might be best. <laughs> We open with the indecipherable voice on the tannoy, the clicking of exotic destinations on the message board, all of which click over and are left with St. John's, Newfoundland. And if last travel advisory was an exercise in unmitigated envy, this will begin with some mitigated envy. Robin, tell me, why am I jealous that you got to go to a windswept fishing village at the end of nowhere? Well, there was no fishing village to be seen. You're referring to Cape Spear, uh, which is one of uh, several sites I saw in St. John's. I was there to attend the Writers' Union of Canada annual general meeting, uh, from which there was no particular news outside of the organization. That The previous year, uh, we voted to allow in self-published authors, and that was big news. And this year, it was uh, boring administrative stuff that we were required to uh, vote on uh, because the laws concerning nonprofit organizations in Canada are changing. So oh, no. that, that was super exciting. But uh, St. John's uh, was really great. And the exciting thing about Cape Spear, even though it meant traveling back in space, back into winter again, uh, and it was very cold and windswept, uh, Cape Spear is the easternmost part of uh, North America and has a uh, World War II gun emplacement and historic lighthouses, and we got to see an iceberg floating uh, in the sea, and so that was a, a very exciting, stark environment, and one in which you can imagine all sorts of elliptonic and Fordian activities for, indeed, Newfoundland, as the locals prefer to emphasize the last syllable, is a veritable stockpot of uh, Fortiana and Elliptony. So there's all sorts of uh, exciting stuff going on there. And also just a really rich and interesting slice of history. Uh, Newfoundland did not become part of Canada until uh, 1949. And previous to that was its own separate dominion. It's actually 
the very first English colony as the beginning yes. of the empire. Sebastian Cabot found it. As you might guess from the name, uh, the name is just generic colony, basically. But there's a really long and fascinating history of different uh, cultures uh, mixing and sort of remaining in their own uh, little uh, crucible over time. So there's a, a lot of uh, fascinating detail that... Uh, we got not only by looking at the uh, lichens out at Cape Spear, but uh, checking out their history and art museum and historic house and just uh, drinking in the uh, atmosphere of this very unique city that's part of a very distinct culture within Canada. Oh, okay. The iceberg is great. Everyone loves icebergs and World War II gun emplacements. Terrific if you are 10. Is there any other uh, sort of thing that is particularly gamified about Newfoundland that or Newfoundland, as I should, I guess, say to make them happy, that is something that a casual observer would not notice, that you have to be there on the ground and you look up and you say, oh, this is how a Thakwa works or whatever it is. Is there Was there a moment like that? Did you have a, a, a game epiphany? Well, there are all sorts of interesting little details from history that I might point to as fun things that you could spin a scenario around. The History of uh, Newfoundland is sort of punctuated by tragedy because it is a fishing shipping center. And so you've got all sorts of uh, ships going down. You've got mm -hmm. uh, history of piracy. Uh, there are legends of uh, pirates and ghost pirates and the dogs murdered by pirates. And uh, you've oh, got right, another okay. sort of... Wait, let's back up on this one. So, yeah, the, yeah. The, the pirates are murdering dogs in Newfoundland. Yes, there's a there's one of the was, famous... Was, it, was this just because they were arguing over, you know the division of the treasure, and the dog was like, I want more snossages, and the pirate's like, no, you can't have all the snossages, it's not fair. According to the legend of this boy and dog ghost trio, uh -huh. uh, the pirates decided to execute a, uh, a young cabin boy for uh, reasons unknown, as, as is often the case in legends, and the his dog, the loyal ship's dog, went to protect him, so they killed the dog too, which explains mm. why people still cite a uh, boy and his uh, dog as ghosts. Now, are they are these good ghosts? Are they ghosts that when you see them, it's like, well, thank God, little Timmy and uh, Ruffer are there guarding the shores from pirates? Or is it like, oh, Timmy and Ruffer are going to drag us down to Newfoundland hell, which is even colder than regular Newfoundland? I think these are just sort of your standard real-life ghost legends in that they are eerie and neutral, right? That they're right, not, okay. uh, they're a manifestation that somebody uh, sees and they're reported in a legend, but they're mm -hmm. like ghosts in real ghost stories rather than ghosts in horror stories. They're not actively doing very much. Uh, who knows? Maybe they were uh, fighting pirates back when there were pirates to be fought, but that's mm -hmm. uh, no longer the case. Well, they're hanging out there at the World War II gun emplacement and fighting Nazis, maybe. Perhaps so. Well, well dogs actually feature in a big way in uh, Newfoundland history, because, of course, this is where the uh, Newfoundland dog and the Labrador uh, come from. These are yes. both uh, dogs that were bred to work on boats, the bigger dog on the bigger boats. And they were sort of emblems of uh, Newfoundland culture. They appear a lot on the uh, stamps and money of uh, Newfoundland back when it was an independent dominion. Well, it wasn't independent, but it was its own separate colony. And uh, there was a period there when they were threatened with extinction. And in fact, they were then brought back by a particular breeder and are now uh, among the world's most popular dog breeds. And uh, dogs also featured in uh, one of the several political rebellions that uh, sort of murmured and bubbled up as the uh, residents fought for representative government against the aristocratic clique that uh, ran things. And one of the big incidents that uh, sort of fomented sedition was a law for the shooting of stray dogs, uh, which was a great idea if you were a uh, cattle or sheep rancher, but bad news if you uh, were a sailor with a working dog and people mm -hmm. were in the city of St. John's were afraid that their dogs would be uh, shot as a means of uh, keeping the rabble and or Irish in line. And so there was uh, one of the... <laughs> like there's a difference. <laughs> right. And there's a strong strain of Irish culture still through uh, Newfoundland. Most people actually descend from the west counties of England, but there was a big Irish influx as well. And uh, there was a high degree of concentration. So a lot of the shipping or, or fishing communities are either all Irish or all English, so there was big sectarian flavor to the conflict there as well, mm -hmm. and and there's sort of still traces of that 
today. When you mentioned the Irish, it brought to mind the fairly common understanding amongst historians of exploration that the Basques probably had found Newfoundland but had not made the stupid mistake of telling everyone else about this awesome place to dry fish. And obviously the Portuguese followed the Basques there in fairly short order. Are either of those communities present in modern-day Newfoundland? Did they come back uh, to the to their ancestral, not spawning grounds, but whaling grounds and fishing grounds the way that they did to... Uh, Rhode Island and uh, southern New England? Uh, They can be found in etymology and in food, but there aren't coherent communities. Uh, So there's places that have, uh, you know, obviously Portuguese words that have been translated into French and then back into English, and and, uh, uh, bits of the cuisine have sort of filtered through. But there's not like a a large extant community still. Right. Briefly curious, as we discuss the uh, ethnic mix of English and Irish, of course, is plenty enough to start a fight. Right. And of course, speaking of people who got there first, uh, there's also there's a Viking settlement, Mm -hmm. Walsall Meadows. We did not quite get that far, but uh, that famously among the reasons that the Vikings left were they were uh, once attacked by unipeds. Mm. And so that's uh, that's not a good sign. And yet another, of course, Fortean thing to know that along with its sea monsters and giant squids and lake monsters that there are, are uh, perhaps unipeds still uh, haunting the uh, forest depths of uh, Newfoundland. The rebellion story I wanted to tell you is my, my favorite rebellion story. So around 1826, the English government decided to heavily tax its colonies because, of course, that had worked out so well for them in the past. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a no-fail proposition. And indeed, the locals uh, who objected to paying this tax uh, started singing uh, patriotic songs to the tune of Yankee Doodle Dandy with the uh, lyrics refashioned. But even better than that, the uh, merchants class uh, also strongly objected to heavy taxation. Oddly enough, don't know why That's- they would... I have trouble with that. <laughs> and they were the ones so who controlled strange. all of the shipping back and forth between England and Newfoundland. And so they just refused to carry any mail. <laughs> and so if there is no mail going back and forth, the orders to the local authorities to impose this tax cannot be received and therefore <laughs> cannot be enforced. Yes. So... Uh, this was, I think, the, the most uh, brilliant rebellion uh, in the uh, history of uh, English colonies slipping the chains of command. So Newfoundland secretly declared independence and is uh, its own country today, but no one knows it because the mail hasn't gotten through. <laughs> is that what happened? I, I or, don't I mean, know. There's, I, I'm, I <laughs> do have people from Newfoundland on Facebook, and I, I, they haven't told me, but they wouldn't, of course. They, they, but the end of the story, right? I mean, and then we stopped carrying mail to England. The end. Yeah. Uh, excuse me. Did you, when did you start again? Didn't they notice? Was it like 1840? And someone's like, we haven't gotten any mail from Newfoundland for a while. Can you look into that, Nigel? You've got it, champ. Well, they were objecting that their uh, the taxes they were looking for weren't c- coming back, right? So the taxes yeah. went from moderate; uh, they did not achieve the exorbitant levels, and in fact, trickled mm. to zero. So uh, yes. the the tax strike was pretty effective. I'm beginning to th- I'm beginning to think this mail strike is actually still going on, and no one just bothered to tell them. That's why they were a dominion for so long. It's because they didn't find out about Canada. And there's still people who will argue that the uh, vote to become a province, uh, which Came through a 52% of the vote was, uh, was rigged. a shady deal. Uh, and there's other people who uh, are, are still uh, venerate uh, the first premier, Joey Smallwood, who oversaw the campaign as a, uh, as a great leader who uh, made uh, continued uh, prosperity of uh, Newfoundland possible because it was a small economy and it was prone right, to yeah. uh, crashes. They overbuilt a railroad. And then they had a big bank collapse. And so there was a period there in the, actually in the 20s and 30s when they abandoned democratic government in favor of like a ruling council. And so things got uh, really bad for them. That's it's also serious. the 100th anniversary of a couple of famous, really horrible ceiling disasters. Uh, one case where a ceiling crew was abandoned uh, well they went to hunt on the ice wearing what were not survival gear level clothing but were uh relatively light coats because you get sweaty whacking seals on the head and then there a storm came up and they were stranded on the ice for uh, 58 hours and a lot of people died and only the ones who managed to stay moving the whole time survived and at about the same time uh, another entire ship of sealers went down and so that's a uh, one of the big sort of defining uh, tragedies that is now being commemorated because it happened in 1914. 
well, there you go. And then the bigger tragedy happened in 1914 and sort of, I guess, over uh, overpowered that. The um, the other thing that I know about uh, Newfoundland is that that's where Gil, Gil, Gil Gilmore Marconi uh, sent his radio message from. Is that a big deal? Do they have Marconi days? That's a huge deal because uh, Signal Hill with the Cabot Tower on the top of it overlooks the harbor of uh, St. John's. It's an inlet uh, sort of surrounded by uh, these huge rocky hills. And uh, so that structure oversees the entire city. It is the Axis Mundi of St. John's. And so we uh, went up to Signal Hill, among other things, and uh, uh, saw the structure fr- uh, that uh, received that, ma- or sent the message, I guess. So if you're playing an, an urban fantasy sort of game uh, and you wanted to go out to St. John's. Maybe you might not set it there, but you could go out to St. John's and there'd be selkies all over the place, obviously, because of all the seals and uh, ghosts. And we've discussed yeah. them. Um, because of the Irish culture, there's a huge history of fairy lore as well. Mm-hmm. Some people still have uh, fairy encounters uh, back in the back. And then there's this this great tower, this great Victorian tower that's up there. And then there was a mysterious radio spirit that was established, a sort of a, a spirit of the age of the new century that was born there in Newfoundland and sort of maybe uh, St. John's is like the Bethlehem of your, uh, of the new uh, era of electrical ghosts and monsters, the, the, the 20th century's monsters that uh, are coming back to, uh, to St. John's now that the 20th century is over and the 21st century is beginning and they're, you know, having to fight off the, the new ghosts that were born in South Southern California when ARPANET got activated. Right. And you have a huge theme of, uh, you know, man against nature. So for example, the, economy was devastated yet again in the 90s when the cod fishery collapsed, when it was overfished to the uh, point of destruction. And the economy uh, went down the swirler. And now, however, there's oil money from uh, oil and gas offshore. And so uh, that's had a big effect on... uh, There's been a big food revolution. There's uh, a lot of really great uh, and, uh, you know, kind of pricey restaurants in the main drag. Uh, uh, oh, that's another uh, point of distinction. Water Street, its main drag, is the oldest street in North America. There you go. That's terrific. So that has some uh, uh, historical, magical resonance for that's you. That's got to go back to, what, 1585 or whenever, whenever Queen Elizabeth set up the colony? Or is it not quite that old? Yes, it's, uh, well, the first thing you have to do when you uh, build a harbor is there has to be a street to connect along it with it. a road. Yeah. Okay. And, and there was an interesting sort of dynamic in the beginning, too, because the fisheries magnets in the West Country did not want to allow people to settle in Newfoundland because, of course, they would then lose control over them. They wanted them living in England Mm -hmm. and being beholden to them. And so there was a struggle even to allow people to uh, settle there in the first place. And it was only the importance of occupying it as a uh, strategic area. And that Signal Hill also earlier was the um, one of the uh, sites of a big battle, uh, uh, the French uh, attacked it a number of times and uh, set it on fire. My local historian friend insists that only one of those was really anything, but uh, it was also the, the site of a big military engagement, and that would be a big pivot point in uh, history if that had gone the other way and the French had uh, captured it. Well, unless the French had managed to screw up the war elsewhere, which is what they always managed to do. But yeah, no, I think that from our unpromising uh, beginnings, we've found urban fantasy and ghosts and uh hidden dictatorship on the American continent in the 1920s, suitable for all manner of fine, uh, adventurous play. Uh, is there any final sucker punch you've been holding back from St. John's to deliver to us? Or can we take off our parkas and leave the icy uh, hut here? Well, uh, one of the famous things about the area is the puffins. When we went to Cape Spear, it was a little too blustery. We did not see any puffins, but a number of other people at the conference did. And we were sitting at the table of the banquet with a couple who were very excited. They were a little disappointed that puffins turn out to be small. They're not, of course, <laughs> penguin size. They're relatively small birds. Uh, and they were very excited to see the puffins. And then the relative size of the puffins came into play as a huge ocean gull came by snapped up one of the puffins and ate it. Ooh. Well, so, there you uh, go. That's nature there's, for uh, you. There's a circle of life for you. But I'm sure, Ken, I don't know if, when you would ever find a pretext to get there, but I'm sure that you would uh, love it for like a three, four-day stay. Oh, good. Uh, so er- anyone who is thinking about going to St. John's, now you have more reasons to go there. And anyone who's thinking about adding something uh, cold and interesting to your urban fantasy game, I think you have a lot more reasons to do that. And thus, we leave the travel advisory with our baggage claim intact. 
The Play Generated Map and Document Archive, or PLAGMATA, is a scholarly game studies resource of interest to researchers and game players alike. The archive collects and preserves game documents made by people who play games. Things like homemade maps, filled out character sheets, notebooks, anything made for or during gameplay. The archive depends on document donations from folks like you. All material donated to the archive is digitally stored on the Plagmata.org website, and the originals then sent to live at the Strong Museum of Play in Rochester, New York, which beat up the weak Museum of Play and took its dice. <laughs> yes, indeed. Your old gaming papers will live in a museum for as long as we have museums. <laughs> material from the archive has been featured in scholarly papers, textbooks, and been exhibited in museums around the world. Don't just tell your gaming buddies about the archive. Tell your ex-gaming friends from your youth. Those are folks who will be throwing out papers that that archive wants to preserve. The website is www.plagmata.org. And the donation contact is collections at plagmata.org. So go forth and turn those doodles of beholders into history. Now it's time for another installment of Ask Ken and Robin. This time, donor Brendan Power asks, What tips do you have for dealing with spotty attendance? Ken, how well attended are your games, and how do you deal with absent players? Um, it varies depending on my individual playgroup. Sometimes I luck into a core of players that are there every time. We have it at the house of... Well, by now it's the house of three of my players, so they're fairly regular because... It's their house. And you don't have to clean up. I don't have to clean up. Well, that's, that, that, I think, is, is the reason that we don't have it here is because Sheila doesn't have to clean up specifically. Right. So, Although, <laughs> in my own group, without a weekly gaming group, uh, we would both revert into a feral state. Yeah. So the pretext for cleaning is actually important. Uh, that's good to know. Helpful tip. But yes, so uh, right now I have a pretty strong degree of, uh, of attendance, uh, with the exception of the lovely and talented Will March, who will be the first to tell you that he uh, finds himself overwhelmed by the press of creativity or uh, getting tangled up in other social engagements or whatever it is. For example, he's going to miss the game tonight because he has a bunch of stuff he has to get written for Origins. The nature of making games is such that it can stop you from playing games. But, he is, but when he does attend, he is such a valued uh, and beloved uh, player that aside from little gentle razzing, uh, no one really minds, I don't think. But it does mean that I have to sort of think a little harder about ways to sort of uh, backstop and plan around it. And so far, one of the best ways, though not an infallible way, that I've found of dealing with it is the good old troop-style play methodology in uh, from Ars Magica, where there are a certain number of principal characters, any one of which could drive an adventure, and there are a number of secondary backup or assistant characters, and depending on who's there that time, you let their principles uh, sort of drive the story. And that works better if all the principles are functionally equal. It looks, it works less well if the principles still have defined roles. Uh, for example, Will's character in the current game is the political officer of the, of the starship, and when we are doing scenarios that involve a lot of political machination, which is many of them, it helps to have the political officer there. It's, it's harder to just say, you know, well, we assume that he goes along with our ridiculous plan because that's what his job would be. No, hold on, his job is to stop you and, and, and inform on you, or at the very least, come up with a colorable way to survive it. Right, and to zoom out a bit, even just having a player who's really great and throws you a lot of stuff to work with, uh, but doesn't have great attendance, is an extra level of challenge because they may be bringing into play all of these great pl plot threads, but you can't bring them back up again when they're not around. Right. And so you have to really sort of carefully um, manage the structure of your campaign in terms of what threads you're picking up and what threads you're dropping. And there are a number of ways to do that, which I guess we'll get to after I stop interrupting you. <laughs> well, it's not technically interrupting, I guess, if, you know, we, we, we have to get to your answer at some point. But you were talking about the example of uh, the challenge in specifics yeah. of having the political officer away when his area of specialty ought to be coming into play. And it's the same sort of thing that if you've got a, a superhero campaign, for example, there are things, if you've got Superman and Aquaman and, and Batman, and you're like, okay, now we're going to do the undersea adventure. Aquaman's player's not here. That's, you know, Superman can do all that stuff, but it's 
it's it's less fun. It's it's less the point of having that adventure happen. Superman's on a mission in space. Superman, you can always explain away. The mission in space is is our shorthand for uh, for dealing with absent players, which is hilarious. And yes, it, it really all these years meant that Superman was visiting his second family uh, on Mars. That's right. But yes. We won't get into that. Yeah. The um. Uh, well, it's something of a mission in space. The uh. But but when your game is actually set in space, it's harder to harder to argue that someone's on a mission in space. Yeah, and we don't have holodecks either, so we can't just say they're down on the holodeck and can't be disturbed. The other thing that you can do, assuming that you can't keep your games to one-shots in the sense that every adventure opens up, plays out, and is shut down in one session, which is kind of the the, the target to aim for in a lot of cases, truly episodic play. But the other thing that you can do, I think, is just to inculcate a sufficient uh, atmosphere of trust around the table that maybe a player who's going to be gone says, well, I know that uh, uh, Sarah isn't going to mess with me, and she sort of grocks what my character's doing. I trust her to play my character, and I'm not going to come back and say, no, no, I wouldn't have done that. No, no, I didn't do that. I'm going to uh, you know, come back to my character and play it from the position that Sarah left it at the end of the last game. And I think that that is, you know, you know, over and above all the other reasons to inculcate an atmosphere of trust around the table. I think that's a really good one because it does, uh, it do- it doesn't, you know, end the problem, but it backstops it a great deal more than if you just have to say, well, the political officer is locked in his cabin and won't talk to anyone for a session. In general, what I do is I just don't address it um, because I too have a group where people, there's a sort of a core of people. And sometimes uh, it's, it's often the case that someone will have a period where they're, uh, committed elsewhere for a while and their attendance will become spotty. And even if you want to sort of make things self-contained, often, you know, Murphy's Law dictates that the character who is at the pivot point of a cliffhanger at the end of your episode, even if you tried not to have a cliffhanger, they're not going to be able to make it next week, right? And so there are bigger things that you have to do there. But even if you've just got a continuing campaign, um, I just basically say the character has the flu. And other than that, we're just not going to address it. We're not, we're not even going to really get to the point of that. They're just suddenly not there. And then the next week they suddenly are there. And although Mm -hmm. that obviously is taking a hit in realism, it's just um, becomes annoying to justify for the 14th time why a character who, you know, were this a novel or a movie or a a TV show would not suddenly be missing Mm -hmm. is, you know, you can do it the first few times, but after a while, it's just, you know, forget about it. We're not, it's just a conceit of this that we're not going to ask any questions about that. They're not there. And then next week, if they show up, they can act as if they were there with, you know, no, no one the wiser, because again, you don't want to have to start off every session with a 20 minute scene where the characters fill each other in and react to what happened, even though the players, you know, have to fill each other in on, on what happened. And although that's that's clumsy, uh, all of the other possible solutions to that, uh, once you're in that situation, if you haven't managed to keep everything totally self-contained, I think require uh, much longer walks for much shorter results. Now, does that uh, solution obtain even in sort of more traditional dungeon environments where the six of you have gone down into the dungeon and then a guy can't show up? And is it just that that guy was you know, on the astral plane, and so if the players are all, like, massacred by a dragon, he wasn't massacred by a dragon, or is, how do you handle things where there's no convenient place to go lie down if your character has the flu, I guess? You still don't address you it. You still don't um, address and, it. And um, if, if it happens that it is then a crazy disjuncture that you have to explain, then you explain it in retrospect. But 19 times out of 20, all it means is that it was a little tougher for them to fight because the cleric wasn't there. Right. Um, it's only really, if, you know, if everybody gets killed off that you then have to go back and do a flashback scene and explain, you know, what it is that happened. But most of the time it doesn't, it doesn't really impact play. And as uh, D&D characters in particular have become more complex over the decades, it's harder and harder to just say, well, okay, the cleric isn't here, you play the cleric. Because now, you know, the amount of work involved in playing a D&D character and knowing all their crunchy bits is such that it radically slows down play mm-hmm. to have another player take over. And you've got to figure out all the feats and stuff. Yeah, and it, it just... You know, they're, they're already slow enough when you've got all those crunchy bits mm-hmm. in play. And, you know, I remember 
as a as a teen DM that I sometimes would run the cleric character for them because those you know the first edition characters are simple enough that you can do that. But the price of always giving all the characters something interesting to do every round in a fight uh, has sort of made that option much more challenging. Mm-hmm. So um, how about if there is a, a an absent player and it's not necessarily that their character is crucial to the scene. We, we've sort of already discussed possible workarounds on that. But what if the player is crucial? What if, you know, you've been building up to the big uh, riddle contest because one of your players is really super into, into riddles and that's the big thing and you know that they're going to face the riddling giant next time around or you're going to the big um, uh, heist and this is the player who always wants to do the heist and this heist has been thrown in as their reward and through no fault of their own let's not say that they're jerks let's say that you know their their you know mom gets sick or they you know have to work late because their boss is a, is an idiot or whatever it is but they can't make it for riddle day or heist day or whatever how do you how do you deal with that do you just uh, say the riddling the riddling giant turns out to be on the next bridge over and everyone's going to fight sturges for four hours how do you how do you handle that yeah i try to find another more interesting than four hours of sturge fighting option that moves the timing of that and you can even like uh, if you're really stuck, you can do that as a flashback, right? You go, oh, well, we'll play that scene when Joe gets here mm-hmm. and we'll go back and allow that to happen. Ideally, you don't want to have to do that. You can yeah. find some other direction. There was a time actually very recently in the Feng Shui campaign that I'm running where there was a big cliffhanger moment and then we almost lost quorum. So we only had uh, three out of the five players. And although we sort of had the pivotal character, the one who was... well. I, they were and weren't pivotal because we had one character who was captured and the other four had to come and rescue them. Well, uh, as it transpired the next week, there are only two rescuers and the imprisoned character. So you don't want to blow everything that was established by just saying, okay, he gets away and the three of you fight mm-hmm. these guys in the cave and the other two characters will just kind of ignore that. And so that became an opportunity to do a one episode hallucinatory dream sequence episode in which two of the characters fell into the hallucinations of the captured character. And the trick there is to make sure that it's meaningful in some way that they, you know, while they were traipsing around in this altered mental reality, they still got information that was valid that they could then apply to the rest of the series so that the plot was advanced, even though this big sort of uh, doorstop of narrative wound up plunking in uh, for one session, and then at the beginning of the next session, when everybody was there, we did as we had planned the scene where uh, they they rescued him. I think uh, that's one of the other advantages to doing it playing troop style anyway, is because you know you you should have in your in the back of your mind. I think if you're any kind of a DM, you should have or GM, you should have these sorts of moments. It's like we want to do a dream sequence episode, we want to do a lower decks episode, we want to do some kind of episode that's not the standard kind of episode. And when you've got a player who's missing in is critical, as opposed to the player who's like, well, it'd be nice if the cleric were here to get his share of the loot, but I guess the ranger can always use a glove of healing. Then you want to be able to pull those out and go to it, and that's the time you can do that, because the other characters, the other players, don't have assumptions. So it's like you're playing, you know... While they're all off in the dungeon, these are the the footmen and 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 torch holders and guys back at the bar who repair their armor, and they're attacked by orcs, and it becomes orcs drift here in this in this tavern with these sort of second and, and zeroth level characters all fighting off orcs, and that could be a really interesting challenge, and it has a real meaning because when they get back from the dungeon, if that town has been sacked by orcs, that's going to be a big change. But if they're little um, they're they're sort of sidekicks and assistants and backup characters have saved the day. That also helps because that enriches play all around because you're like, oh, well, we'd probably better, you know, give him the glove of healing, even though he's second level because he was such a hero back in this town. And that sort of knits the story together on a deeper level. And if you have those kinds of, of stories ready to go, and it can be anything. I, I did a game, although this was, you know, pre-planned and didn't involve characters being gone, but it was something where the characters' kids were being told a fairy tale by their governess, who it turned out was Irene Adler in disguise, but that's a different question. But the, the, the action of the fairy tale sort of recapitulated the big themes of the story, because Irene Adler is planting um, uh, you know, hypnotic mimetics into, the, into their families. And so that's a, that's a, a sort of a, a separated-out story. And if you have enough of those to go, or if your troop is strong enough that the other 
left-behind characters have their own agendas, you can just cut. You can say, well, I, I don't know what's going to happen at the Riddling Giant. We're cutting over here now to the, uh, the, the, the shield uh, man and the uh, hedge wizard and the other characters that you didn't decide to play this time, and they're going to get into what is hopefully a one-shot adventure. And it could be even a standard type of adventure if you've left behind a rich enough mix of, uh, of backups or, uh, or, or B characters. So I guess to, to recap, the things that you can do are to basically ignore character absence as much as you can and not address it, play a troop style, strive for episodic uh, structure, and I think those are the, the big three, I guess. Yeah, like those are the, those are the recaps. Um, or just ignore it, as Robin does, which is probably going to solve <laughs> 80% of your problem 80% of the time, which is better than most things do. Uh, well, I think having recapped, it's time for our next segment. Sweaty palms, cuffed shaky hands, the phantom taste of Mountain Dew on your tongue. These are the symptoms of game withdrawal. And while there is no known cure, the One Shot Podcast can help. One Shot records game sessions with Chicago improvisers, creatives, and notable nerds. Like game designer Will Heinmarch, writer-director Brian Holden, and Batmanologist Chris Sims. Unlike most actual play shows, One Shot explores a wide variety of gaming systems as one-and-done one-shot adventures. With popular games like Pathfinder, Call of Cthulhu, and Star Wars Edge of the Empire, indie classics like Feng Shui, Fiasco, and Dread, and unique gems like Everyone is John, one Shot is a great way to discover your new favorite RPG. This month, One Shot is playing the gumshoe-based Time Watch. Some brilliant writing and design work went into that game. If you missed the Time Watch Kickstarter, this is your chance to see how it plays. Head over to peachesandhotsauce.com to access an archive of 40-plus episodes. Help control your between-adventure cravings with One Shot. The clanking of chains, the whistling of the cold, icy wind through the battlements tell us that we are either back in Newfoundland or we are entering the Horror Hut. And here in the Horror Hut, we are at the very opening of the Horror Hut, the beginning of the Horror Hut, the first foundation of the Horror Hut, because we're going to look at the Castle of Otranto by one of my favorite 18th century people, even not just favorite 18th century authors, the lovely and talented Horace Walpole. Robin, what can you tell us about the Castle of Otranto? So the Castle of Otranto comes out in 1764, and I think most people who haven't read it today know it as a historical title. They may have uh, purchased a copy of it in the days before Project Gutenberg and have it sitting on their shelf, uh, glowering down at them, uh, making them feel guilty. And uh, you may also know it from the way that Lovecraft deals with it in his supernatural horror in literature, where he uh, is pretty scornful of its lack of horrorness, even though it's uh, putatively a tale of the supernatural and it's set in a creepy castle. Um, and I will argue that the reason that it is not horrible is that even though it is the progenitor of horror, it is not itself trying to be a horror story, uh, which is not necessarily surprising because there weren't horror stories at that point. But anyway, right. basically, uh, the main supernatural event that occurs in the course of this is a giant magical helmet falls from the sky and lands on the sickly young bridegroom at a wedding and crushes him to death, thereby precipitating a series of crises in the, the household of this uh, nobleman, uh, Manfred. Uh, and he's sort of the forbidding father figure. And various hijinks occur. He decides that he still needs to uh, marry the uh, intended bride, which involves getting rid of his wife. And uh, also uh, there's a... Uh, his own daughter is... Uh, involved in uh she becomes interested in uh, a, a local is it uh theodore the local young hero is he i forget now it's very convoluted he yeah. gets involved with 
Is it Isabella or Matilde? One of the it's other. Isabella. Isabella. Isabella's the daughter, and Theodore is the the local. Uh, he, he's sort of the the guy whose job it is to say, "Gosh, that falling helmet seems awfully symbolic." Right, and uh, there's a sword play and a horrible accident, and people die, and then there's a, a spoilers a happy ending, uh, and so. <laughs> This really is much more about the weird interrelationships of this, uh, these two households than it is what you think of when you think of a, uh, a gothic story. And it's something that uh, if you wanted to play it out, and possibly this might explain some of the weird uh, plot twists that goes down, is it's much more of a drama system game than a traditional horror game uh, ever would be. It's not like they're going down into the crypt to find out what dropped the giant magical helmet on them. Yeah, the, um, it, it's, it's not really an investigative game in that sense. It's really about exploring basically what Walpole is doing is he's trying to write a prose novel that is as great and as awesome as a Shakespeare tragedy. And that, he says that basically right out there in the, in, the for, in the foreword of the second edition. People were giving him static because the novel was crazy and there were giant helmets and no one knew what it was. And he's like, look, Shakespeare does this all the time and you don't give him static. Get off my back. I'm very, very rich. <laughs> and, um, uh, and, and so when you look which, at which it suggests as... suggests that he'd only read Cymbeline. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. He'd, he'd, read, he'd read Hamlet. I mean, the, the, the ghost is, is very clearly there. Um, it, it, it's sort of the tragedy of Manfred, as opposed to, in a more standard gothic, the persecution of uh, Matilda, which is the, um, or the persecution of, which is it? It's Isabella. They're, they're both persecuted. They're girls in a gothic. They are both persecuted. But, but, but the, the story is the tragedy of Manfred. It's, Man, it's Manfred's fall is, you know, symbolized by the fall of this helmet and the, this sort of oppressive uh, presence of the past. Walpole obviously has a political uh, goal as well, because the gothic uh, begins as an indictment of Catholicism, and he's got a lot of he, he's got a lot of balls in the air, and especially when you consider, as you point out, that it's the first thing that ever tries to do that thing. It I think it does it remarkably well. I love the atmosphere. I think that uh, it, it's short, it, which is a great blessing compared to trying to slog your way through Anne Radcliffe. Um, and I I think that it's or for God's sake, Maturin. Um, I, I, I like it a great deal, and I think that if you once you sort of look at it as a prose play, as opposed to as either a mature horror novel or even a mature gothic, I, I think it, it sort of, you know, the window opens and you get a little better sense of what's, what, or at least what Walpole is trying to do. And I think even more to the point, it's not a prose play, it's an opera libretto without any music. Right. Um, if yes. you look at the kind of librettos that were appearing uh, just before that in the 1740s with Vivaldi, and even more so the uh, sorts of opera librettos that appear uh, later, and you know some of the better examples are uh, the Mozart Magic Flute and Cosi Fantuti and uh, Don Giovanni, that this is totally an opera buffa plotline put on the printed page without any music to go with it. And it completely belongs to that tradition. And even to the point of, you know, weirdly mixing up tones so that there is both a lot of it is funny. It's weird yeah. comedy. It's an odd sense of and humor. intentionally funny. But yeah, it's yeah. intentionally funny. It's sort of a spoof. It's, it's, and that's why it's weird and crazy is because it fails at being a horror story because it's not even trying to be a horror story. It's trying to be, it's sort of really more kind of the beginning of the fantasy genre than it is of the horror genre because he is not basing this on an existing myth. And a lot of the uh, opera librettos at the time would take a myth and wrench it into whatever crazy shape they needed to satisfy the all the different configurations of duets and vocal parts and set changes and all of that. But this is, you know, taking an, an imaginary, although, of course, like all novels at the time, it claims to be a translation of a real document about a real thing, which, of course, is even more nonsensical in this case than it would be like <laughs> yes. later with Robinson Crusoe or Jekyll and Hyde. And so that's what it is. It's it's an it's an opera libretto on on the page, and so scoring it for not being horrific is um, missing the point, I think. But uh, then other people then took that framework of imagery: the old dark house, the family intrigue, the uh, women being. They took all the motifs and then poured it into the tone that we are used to thinking of when we talk about something uh, being the gothic or being gothic horror. But even then, I mean, the, 
much of the, uh, like you say, the tone does change, and part of the reason that the comedy works at, like it does, and I'm not going to say it works as well as it does, although it does work well, but the specific way that it likes is as relief from something that if you did look at it straightforward would be horrible and would be horrifying. And there are moments in Otranto, and I'm again going to say that Walpole puts these in on purpose, there are moments in there that are really, you know, very terrifying because they are, you know, uh, for, for 1764 anyway, they're close to cosmic horror. They are the, uh, you have sort of a, a quasi-naturalistic romance, which is, again, what Walpole says he's writing, that has the old romance, the, the old uh, medieval romance, uh, inserted into it. And that literally happens with the manifestation of this giant helmet, that the old medieval world is inserted into the quasi-modern world of Manfred and his family, and that that interplay is part of the horror, that it's structurally horrific in the same sort of way that something that uses, you know, stream of consciousness or some sort of disturbed narrative in the in, in the earlier 20th century, even now, the unreliable narrator type stuff, that that is done to dislocate the reader. I think that uh, Walpole is also intending to sort of dislocate the reader a bit, and when he ties the story up with a neat little bow and a, and a happy ending, he's, you know, restoring that in the same way that, like you say, an opera or a Shakespeare play has the big restorative ending, but the journey through there is what people take away. And it's what I think Walpole intends with the Gothic. Walpole, of course, had a famously Gothic sense in architecture. He uh, was a great uh, builder of, of uh, quasi-medieval and pseudo-medieval uh, structures as a, as a hobby. He collected weird artifacts and, and kept them around and would uh, point them out to guests who had almost been stabbed by them. He, he's just terrific. And, the, and, that, and that Gothic sensibility that he had becomes ever more intensified and darker as the, you know, artistic world moves away from the age of reason and into the age of uh, romanticism. And uh, and as people who aren't, you know, super rich and super uh, successful start writing these same novels and have something actually to lose by them, and they start really putting some of that sense of personal uh, danger into it. And I, I think that the Gothic in that way becomes intensified, but it's all, I, I think it's all present there. For, for me, the, the whipsawing tone reminds me more of Ben Jonson than it does of Shakespeare in that Shakespeare seems more contemporary to us now because his uh, humanism tends to lead to a, a sort of a, a more consistent tone. Whereas Johnson, mm -hmm. there's more of a level of cruelty and there's a uh, cruelty that you're supposed to uh, embrace or laugh off as part of the comedy. And I think that Walpole has that more of that sensibility. And so the, the shifts between what seemed to be horror and quite, uh, you know, awful things happening. And then, you know, a few moments later, everything's happy again is a lot more like Johnson. And I think reflects a sensibility that in the modern world, we find tougher to get a, a grip on. I think that your invocation of Johnson is probably sort of pointing the right way. I think you could also invoke John Webster and the sort of revenge dramas as another example of horror and comedy that are just sort of pressed up against each other. I think that things like the Duchess of Malfi maybe are closer to anything that's happened, because there you've got incest and werewolves and all kinds of weird quasi-supernatural stuff that never quite turns the corner. I mean, Webster never quite drops the helmet on you in the Duchess of Malfi, even to the extent that Shakespeare does with Macbeth. But you have the tonal dissonance that we see as dissonance now, because we are generally more of a rational era than the 1764. And again, Walpole is re rebelling against the sort of over-rational novel with this insertion of, of Medievalia into it. Right. And in order to become horror and fantasy and not naturalism, you have to progress far enough in the timeline that people don't believe in witches. <laughs> but Macbeth, according to the uh, worldview of the time, is that if you run into witches on the road, that's the same as, you know, running into a... Uh, a monk on the road or, or running into a, an apple peddler. That's just something that happens. Or more likely running into um, uh, something big and dangerous. Right. <laughs> Whereas, you know, helmets falling from the sky and crushing the simpering bridegroom are, you know, something that doesn't come from uh, mythology or people's ideas right. of uh, what's going on. But it is an overtly unreal, uh, even, you know, surreal uh, touch. Yeah. Um, and I guess you can sort of go back and forth as to, to what extent do people in Shakespeare's time, believe that the Tempest, for example, has fantastic elements. Do they think that, you know, yeah, there's probably an island where there's a monster and a, and a fairy, and 
Then there's the, if there was a wizard, uh, I guess there's a, there might be a wizard and he might be trapped on the island and he could probably, I mean, are they, you know, sort of looking at it as science fiction in that way or are they looking at it as fantasy? They're probably looking at it as a fanciful heightened version of a real thing, right? Everybody's got a, uh, an aunt who told them a story of an encounter with fairies. And that story may have been, you know, not nearly as uh, dramatic or interesting as the fairies in Midsummer Night's Dream or as Mm -hmm. in The Tempest. But it's still, you know, a dramatically heightened version of a real thing, just the way that, you know, a sword fight... Like a serial killer movie is now. Yeah. Uh, Well, I think we've uh, uh, well chewed over this uh, weird, interesting, uh, well worth reading, but in many ways baffling original text, and can move on to our final segment. The creaking of the cobbed web stairs, the glowering stare of the portrait of Madame Blavatsky, that nasty pool of ichor over in the corner that seems to uh, quiver and occasionally shoot up an eye stalk, indicate to us that we've once more stumbled into the parlor of the consulting occultist. And this week I see there's a weird Raggedy Ann doll uh, up on the shelf as well, because this week, uh, in accordance with a request from listener David McBride, we are going to quiz the consulting occultist about Ed and Lorraine Warren. If you saw the recent horror movie The Conjuring, they were uh, fictionalized in that. Uh, If you look at Wikipedia, the real Ed and Lorraine Warren did not look like Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga. (laughs) So few of us do. Yes. Ed Warren is no longer with us. He died in 2006, but uh, Lorraine Warren still is. I guess sort of their heyday as demonologists slash uh, paranormalists slash exorcists was sort of the uh, 60s and 70s. So, uh, Ken, what do people need to know about uh, this uh, colorful couple of uh, Ghostbusters? I think the first thing that you need to know about the Warrens is that they are the people who were sort of uh, ground, not zero, because the ground zero was the actual fraud, but they're ground one, I guess, of the Amityville horror case. These, the, This is sort of the thing that makes their bones, it gets them the sort of Hollywood connection that Sort of drives the, the the publicity machine throughout, um, and they're the they're the dudes that were there, you know, helping to bust the imaginary ghost in Amityville. And, I, and this is the reason that I never really got into Ed and Lorraine Warren, even as a kid, when I was more gullible and happy to read nonsense and badly written nonsense than I am now, because I knew very very early on the 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 ghost desk at the Daily Oklahoman did its job and made sure that everyone in, in Oklahoma City knew that the Amityville horror was a hoax and that if you saw the movie, you were just seeing a stupid movie with ghosts and, and, and nothing that had anything to do with real with real life. So when I found out about the Warrens, I was um, perhaps irrationally upset with them for having wasted my time with an imaginary ghost when there were so many more exciting real ghosts out there to look at, maybe. But they continued as sort of freelance, magical and psychic investigators, ghostbusters, ghost checkers, outers, demon exercisers, you know, all of your standard supernatural cleansing needs. And because of Amityville, they have, you know, their agent has good connections, and so you get The Conjuring that's made out of one of their cases, and uh, Haunting in Connecticut is made out of one of their cases. They've got a, a number of different uh, sorts of uh, their adventures that have become uh, films of one kind or another. And uh, so I guess the thing to take away is they don't seem to be crooks or or rotten people. The New England Skeptical Society investigated them and had sent a guy over to ask them questions. And of course, like all of the ghost hunters, they had you know no evidence except evidence that they don't know how to work a camera. And they had no desire to give anything you know that could be tested to the the skeptics and nor should they because they have a nice little you know magic museum business going but they're not crooks they're not out there you know bilking people out of money or or doing anything else they're uh, true believers who just have a better publicity agent than other true believers and are willing to go into creepy houses and tell scared people you know that they've fixed the ghost problem or they've fixed the demon problem or i suppose in very rare cases that nothing can fix the ghost problem or the demon problem, but it's the same sort of placebo effect uh, ghost busting that I suspect most ghost busting actually is. So that's the uh, boring reality, mm-hmm. but uh, are they've obviously had a big footprint on 
pop culture as sort of archetypal paranormal investigator slash clairvoyant team because she uh, supposedly has clairvoyant powers, which uh, filter into her investigation. So Mm -hmm. what sort of uh, uses can you uh, make of these as uh, player characters, for example? I I think that the first thing is that you can use them very much as models for sort of lo-fi ghost-busting games and lo-fi psychic investigation games because fundamentally Ed Warren is a ex-cop and Navy veteran, and he then teaches himself the occult and goes off. And so he's sort of like a, you can see him as a dual class fighter sage. And then his wife, as you mentioned, is a clairvoyant and a medium. And so she has those abilities and they together become sort of the core. And you can imagine if you look at the, the, the great old Matheson book and later film, uh, the haunting of hell house, where you have the, the little occult investigator team go in or the, uh, to a lesser extent in, in the haunting, um, there's a, there's a sort of a, a, a rightness to that, that setup that you can use the Warrens either as models for your characters, or they can be because they have their New England Society for Psychic Research and they've had it since 1952. And they have their occult museum, which is just jam packed with all manner of, of magical things. And apparently you can't even move around in it, but if you touch anything, it might possess you. And so they'll, they'll do a, a cleanse for you as you, as you leave the, the place. And among them is the, is the Raggedy Ann doll that you speak of, which is behind glass, so it is not accidentally touched because it has got a demon in it, which is interesting on at least four levels. So um, you can either use them as sort of the, um, uh, the kindly old mentors, if your game is in modern days, or if it's you know, set back in you know, X-Men uh, first class days, the, the notion of using the 60s and 70s now as historical gaming, I think, is, is a great deal of fun. And you could have them be you're modeling your player characters on them, or they're the rivals. They're the guys who get to all the ghost sites first, or they have the Hollywood connections. They're sort of the people who, for some reason or another, are always just just one step ahead of you, and you begin to think, they've been touching a lot of ghosts and a lot of demons, and Lorraine is a medium, and she can be possessed by stuff all the time. Maybe they... And then they would still be friendly and nice and have a good affect and, you know, like, uh, like Lance White on the Rockford files when he beat Rockford to something. He'd, he was never a jerk about it. He was just always better. And, um, and they could have that sort of, no, ab- great to meet. You. No, absolutely. You can borrow our juju stick. Not a problem. But there's just that sense that maybe they're a little over the edge. And so they become a cautionary pointer to the player characters just as much as they might be a, uh, and uh, you know a more conventional clue factory or story mine. One of my favorite cases is the case of the demon doll, uh, which they uh, sort of yoke into the the Conjuring movie, although it's uh, sort of a a B plot mm-hmm. from an earlier case where young people uh, living in an apartment, I think in New York City, were attacked by this demon doll. And of course, in the movie, the production designer has supplied a really creepy looking doll. But of course, the <laughs> hilarious thing is that the actual demon doll was a uh, a Raggedy Ann doll it was a licensed product that got mm-hmm. supposedly possessed by a demon and was raking people with its uh, horrific claws and was then uh, installed in there. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's your problem. You bought the Raggedy Ann horrific claws model. Yeah, you well, that's uh, that. this manufactured in China top model. Yeah. And that sort of feeds <laughs> in the idea that they maintain this museum of artifacts from their cases in which uh, uh, somewhat irresponsibly, I think, for a... Uh, repository of evil artifacts you know you can go in pay admission and and see it but that gives you sort of the premise for a adventure or even a campaign where something horrible happens to the paranormal museum full of evil artifacts wasn't that basically the premise for the poltergeist series that the museum of evil artifacts blew up or was robbed or something and they have to hunt down all the stuff from it Oh, the, the TV series? Yeah. Wasn't that the TV show's basic premise? Or was that the Friday the 13th series? I, one of those two series yeah. was the was exactly that, that there was the, the you know, the, the evil doll museum or whatever it was, and it got robbed or blown up or, or something, and then all the stuff got out, and the characters just had to hunt it down and in a, you go. a million parts style, which I always thought was a really great premise, although I don't think it really, you know, followed up very well. Yeah, I think it was Friday the 13th, because actually... Uh, although I never saw it, actually. It was shot in Toronto. I know, know some people who acted in it. And uh, I remember thinking, hearing the premise, what has this got to do with the Friday the 13th franchise? And the answer is uh, nothing. It's based on the Warrens. <laughs> and I, I suspect what it was is that someone had a Warrens TV show and then the Friday the 13th property became available. And they said, yes, 
that's what this is. I, I think you're you're right. Um, among their other exploits that you could design scenarios around, they uh, exercised a werewolf demon. So that is an interesting example of you know they see everything through the lens of demonic possession. There aren't ghosts. There aren't uh, other kinds of monsters. There aren't vampires. Everything's a demon. And so uh, you could uh, use that as the premise for a, uh, a an adjusted version of the werewolf uh, myth where the way to deal with it is not to shoot the werewolf with a silver bullet, but to restrain it long enough to conduct an exorcism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they have a, a very nice um, sort of American mainstream Orthodox Christianity about their about their ghosts and demons. There's there's for people who go around hunting werewolves and haunted dolls, they are not New Age hippie type people. They are very straight. I mean, it, it, like I say, the guy was a, an ex cop and a Navy veteran, and they started this in the 1950s. So if you can imagine sort of a Silver Age comics version of Ghost Hunters, that's what these guys are. There's not a lot of um, and it's one of the reasons that I, I sort of like them, having read about them uh, in preparation for this, is that they have, you know, they, they have no, you know, it, it's that old school uh, ghost hunting. And again, that's, of course, what sets them up to be killed in, in Act 1 of your campaign, more likely. But still, I like it. You could do a supernatural courtroom drama. There was a case where they were arguing that a... Uh person charged with murder was not guilty by reason of demonic possession. Mm-hmm. Um, oddly enough, that did not become part of American jurisprudence. <laughs> Go figure. Yeah. But you could certainly uh, uh, work that into the uh, the case. You know, you could have an esoterrorist case where if that does become acceptable, if there's some sort of manifestation in court of a supernatural power, of course, that uh, thins the men brain horribly. So you've got to go and uh, maneuver not around these uh, lovable but naive stooges of the outer dark entities and uh, find a way to uh, make sure that the uh, real summoners behind the scenes do not uh, stage anything particularly uh, bizarre and mind-shattering. Yeah, and I think that became, um, well, I forget if that, they made a movie out of that or not, but there was a there was a movie about um, a trial about an exorcism that was... I guess about the girl that died in the in the course of an exorcism. Uh, it was uh, sort the, of the Emily other Rose that. one. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. yeah, which is not them, but is a allied field that you could look at in terms of you know you're the Ghostbusters in the town, and the Warrens are your sort of you know beloved mentors, and then they get tried, put on trial because someone died during one of their uh, de hauntings, and you have to investigate that and find out. What killed that? Was it a demon? Can you fix it? Can you get them off and, you know, either frame some other entity or figure out that it was, you know, some way to get them off the off the case so that you don't wind up bringing demons into curse? Right. And they never accidentally killed anyone during an exorcism. No, they never but, did, of uh, course. Certainly that's uh, happened a lot with other mm-hmm. self-appointed exorcists. So if you're uh, arranging an exorcism, be sure to look at people's resumes and qualifications. Mm-hmm. Yeah, check. I think there's the Better Business Bureau, and if you if you've killed uh, like three people, you can't get the Better Business Bureau recommendation anymore. So that's good. And in the broader world, the uh, the Catholic Church is uh, training more exorcists. Demands yes. for exorcisms are up, and uh, although uh, the new Pope is very forward edge in his uh, approach in a lot of ways, he's actually very hardcore on the actual existence of of the devil. And uh, so the <laughs> well, uh, it sort of goes with the job of being Pope, though. I mean, well, you would think so, <laughs> but it, you know he's having to uh, ramp up uh, departments that were moribund under uh, his immediate predecessors. So you know there uh, <laughs> we're obviously having this discussion with the assumption that. Uh, it's all crazy pants, but there's uh, one of the world's biggest religions, and probably others uh, would beg to differ with us. Yeah, I, I think that if you if you took a vote, uh, demons would would win over podcasters uh, by a by a shockingly wide margin. <laughs> so uh, that's actually another possibility: is you come into it in in, a, in the kind of game where there are no ghosts, there are no demons. You're playing a straightforward game. Uh, either it's a science fiction type game, you know, where there has been no supernatural component to it at all. And you're presented with these obvious uh, naive goofs, but there may be something, and that that becomes the mystery: is that how, you know, how do you know as uh, the player characters that there isn't something supernatural? Especially since, on a meta level, you know you're in a role-playing game where 95% of them do have ghosts and monsters and supernatural demons and things like that. You know, if, again, in the in the in the big vote of genres. Uh, demons beat cyberpunks as well. Right. Um, so uh, before we go, are there any other uh, particular plot seeds you would like to uh, 
uh, bring to people's attention along with the demonic court cases, the possessed dolls, and the werewolf demons? Um, I think that if you look into their uh, their books, they have books of all of their little cases. They also went back and re-examined uh, the case of the Borley Rectory. And it's just been uh, restored, I think. It's a reopening to the public. Which was the famous most haunted house in England that was investigated by the great uh, Trail of Cthulhu-era investigator and actual con man, Harry Price. Um, and that their, invest- their honest investigation of a con man's haunting that could turn into one of those esoteric-type hauntings, I think, where it's a fake haunting that has become so famous that now it is outer dark real, and when these nice people uh, discover the outer dark, what do they do? What happens to them? And maybe you are the third generation. Your esoteric team, your, uh, your OV team, is the third generation of investigators because you have to go back into the Borley Rectory, which they sealed, but they sealed it wrong or badly, and pieces are, are leaking out now. And until you've undone, it's like plumbing, right? You have to undo all the bad plumbing that the terrible plumber, the, the, the do-it-yourself guy put in before you can put in the copper pipe that actually solves the problem. Well, your uh, mention of Harry Price suggests uh, another segment unto itself. And as we know, when we begin to make notes for future segments, we have probably concluded this one and with it, another exciting podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. The play-generated map and document archive. One-Shot Podcast. And Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Palgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Protect yourself from possessed Raggedy Ann dolls by hitting the donate button at kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Joining such patrons as the especially munificent Andrew Hermetz. And frequent donor Jeremy French. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, podcast, or puffin by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.